I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on tonight's episode. The offseason is here, so we'll start to dive into the class of 2025. After largely focusing on out-of-state talent, players that largely the group that bailed at the last minute in 2024, should the Gators focus more on players closer to home? The significance of one-score games, a new Read and Reaction article by Will Miles, coming soon to a readingreaction.com near you. And we witnessed one of the better playoffs since this thing has existed in the last 10 years here. Michigan and Washington come out on top. Wolverines and Huskies for the national title. We'll look at that game and we'll wrap up with a few thoughts on the bowl games. Will, how's it going, man? Going great. Happy New Year, everybody. Appreciate you sticking with us in 2023. A little bit of a rough one there for Gator fans in 2023, though it ended on a, on a pretty solid note with that uh, Georgia win over Florida State. Having to hear all the Florida State folks complain about uh, their entire team opting out. Uh, you know, if you're a Gator fan, you're not in a bowl game. Maybe that's the best way to best way to start things off. Just a reminder, um, like, subscribe to the podcast here. Uh, that helps us out. Doesn't cost you anything. Helps us know that you're enjoying what we're putting out there. Certainly in the comments, if there's stuff you'd like us to talk about this offseason put stuff down there as well we'd love to do it 2024 let's get going man well we'll do some of that orange bowl commentary at the end uh let's jump right into 2025 will and one of the things you and i were both talking earlier this week and we were taking a, a look at the 24 7 class of 2025 and the top 10 already has Six guys committed. You're looking at three are committed to Alabama. One is committed to Florida State. One to Notre Dame. One Oregon. And there are four uncommitted with one uh, linebacker, uh, Tarvos Alford from Vero Beach, Crystal Bald, to Florida. Well, we saw Napier and company really take it national last offseason. And with success early on in the class, really for most of the class, if you want to put it on a timeline, they had a lot of success going out, out of state, but came back to bit them, bite them a little bit in the end there with a lot of flips being out of state guys at the last second. So you really would think that maybe the focus needs to be closer home with some guys who grew up nearby, less likely to transfer, perhaps. Tough start to the 2025 class with six of the top 10 already committed. None of them committed to Florida so far. We do have a couple guys out there that we're, we're in the hunt for, but uh, three Bama three Bama commits in the top 10 is not what you want to see when we're flipping the page here to next year's recruiting class. No, so Florida has one guy in the 2025 class right now, Waltez Clark. He's the 29th overall player in the state, 199th national rank. So a very solid player at the running back position. 0.927 is his 24-7 rating right now. Um, obviously, Billy Napier has to add to that. He's not just going to be able to get away with one guy in the recruiting class, and he's not going to only have one guy in the recruiting class. But I think my interest in looking at the 2025 class sort of came along because of an article Bud Davis wrote for us at Read and Reaction where he looked at how often people transfer, and there is a correlation between distance from the school and transfer. So the further away from Gainesville you are, the more likely you are to transfer. What that means is the guys you're recruiting from high school, especially the way the transfer portal has picked up, the guys you recruit from high school, you want them as close as possible. The thing that's really a little bit depressing is you've got DJ Pickett from Tampa, so 130 miles away. He's the number one player in the state, seventh overall cornerback out of Tampa. Um, he's not undecided, but then you got Jamie French, who's from Jacksonville. 
who's committed to Alabama. You got Solomon Thomas, who's from Jacksonville, committed to Florida State. You got Dallas Wilson, who's from Tampa, committed to Oregon. You get Hilton Stubbs from Jacksonville, the 45th ranked overall player in the country, fifth in the state. He hasn't committed yet. And then you got Javion Hilson from Coco, so 160 miles away, and he's committed to Alabama. You got Ivan Taylor who's from Winter Garden, so 102 miles away. He's committed to Notre Dame. And you've got Anthony Rogers from IMG, so not necessarily Florida. Same thing with Nathaniel Owusu-Boteng, who's at IMG as well. Both of those guys are in Bradenton, 167 miles away. One not committed, and then the other, Anthony Rogers, committed to Alabama. So before you get to Tarvis Alford, who you mentioned, who's the guy who's leaning to Florida, the 10th ranked player in the state, 73rd overall in the national rankings, you got 10 guys who are – or nine guys who are who are really pretty local, right? Really close to Gainesville. Jacksonville is a place that Florida has to own when it comes to recruiting. And the fact that Florida is not owning it is a problem. Now, I think one of the things we learned in this past recruiting cycle is that there's a lot of flipping that goes on when you get close to early signing day. And so there's going to be an opportunity to flip guys in a way that, you know, five, six, seven years ago, these commitments would have been really solid. But let's be honest. How many guys are going to be flipping from Alabama? Um, the guys who are flipping from Alabama, maybe if Saban decides to retire after the loss to Michigan the other night, but you're not, are you going to be able to flip those guys? I think it's a hard sell, which means the state of Florida, again, is getting run by Alabama, not getting run by Florida or Florida State or Miami. And, you know, until that turns around, Florida's going to sit there in that 10, 11, 12, 15 range in recruiting. So it, it's depressing that had you looked at this, you know, six months ago, you would have said, look, everybody on the top of the board for the state of Florida is from Jacksonville or from Tampa or from Coco or from Bradenton. You would have said, look, that's really favorable for Florida. And it turns out we got guys from Jacksonville going to Florida State. And that, that's just not going to get the job done long term. Well, yeah, Jacksonville's going to have a little bit of a split there with Florida, Florida State. But, I mean, kid from Mandarin High School, uh, Carson Beck went to Mandarin High School, for example, was playing up at Georgia, obviously. Mandarin High School, you like to see those guys head down to Gainesville. Well, uh, IMG, do we, do we just start calling IMG its own state? These aren't necessarily Florida kids. And even when they do stop by for a minute – uh, some of them aren't here for too long. So we finally did land some, some prospects from IMG and, and, and off they went. I know we still got a couple guy or two on the roster from IMG, but, uh, man, that's, it's not, they're not all from, Florida guys. Well, a lot of from a transfer home. perspective, they're not, they're not local. Right. Yeah. But from a recruiting perspective, in terms of the resources you have to put into it in order to recruit them, it's not that hard to get down to Bradenton. If you're recruiting in Tampa, getting to Bradenton yeah. isn't no, much different. It should right? be an advantage to have them in Bradenton, so, not, not, not a disadvantage. So, sure. like, you know, my argument against recruiting California has never necessarily been that it's hard to get a guy from California. It, it is. The pro and the fact that they're more likely to transfer and that Bud has that data, I think, is something that maybe is one more, you know, <laughs> one more, uh, um, you know, check mark against it. But the real reason I don't think you want to recruit in California is you got to get on a plane and fly all the way to Los Angeles or San Francisco or Sacramento or wherever you're recruiting. And just being able to do that puts you at a, having to do that puts you at a disadvantage for the Washingtons and the Cals and the UCLAs and the USCs of the world where they can constantly be in that guy's home at that guy's games, checking it out, being constantly in contact. It's just a disadvantage when you're trying to recruit somebody from Texas or Louisiana or California or North Carolina or Ohio or something like that. 
Now, it doesn't appear to be a disadvantage for Alabama to come down to Florida and recruit Florida. Now, part of that is because Alabama is a national brand, right? But Notre Dame has also made its way into Florida. Clemson has made its way into Florida. Michigan has the 11th ranked guy in the country. Um, Chris Elwald from Hollywood, Florida. He's committed to Michigan. The 13th ranked guy is also committed to Michigan, though he's he's an IMG guy, Alex Graham. So other programs are finding their way down, but the programs that are finding their way down are national brands. And I think that's, that's sort of the thing that we maybe learned during early signing day for 20 for the 2024 class is Florida is not necessarily a national brand yet, at least not in the world of NIL. So look, there's still time. I think this is one of those things where there's an opportunity to flip guys. And Hey, there are two guys in the top five who are uncommitted. You got Hilton Stubbs from Mandarin in Jacksonville. You got DJ Pickett, from Zephyr Hills, Tampa, Florida. Um, if you can bring in a guy from Tampa and a guy from Jacksonville, one's a safety, one's a cornerback, and they're both, you know, the seventh ranked player in the country and the 45th ranked player in the country, all of a sudden you're starting to really, really put together talent from the state. But just like we said, you know, the last couple of weeks where we we're talking about the razor's edge that Napier is is riding on the field, it's a it's a razor's edge of this 2025 class because he's gonna have to get commitments from these guys in order to put together an elite class, or he's gonna have to go outside of the state again, which means you're exposing yourself to flips and you're exposing yourself to transfers a year or two down the road. Well, of course, we did have some no- notable guys coming in from out of state, but you're definitely uh, rolling the dice, a little more risky going with the out-of-state prospects at this point. Uh, Will, you got an article coming out. You've been working on this one for some time now. Speaking of a razor's edge here, uh, Jim McElwain, you mentioned 7-1 in his first two seasons in Gainesville in one-score games. Dan Mullen went 6-1 and one in one-score games in his first two seasons in Gainesville before finishing his last two seasons with an 0-7 record in the same category. Uh, very interesting article coming out on Read and Reaction. Uh, on the blog from you here, Will, really showing the difference between SEC championship winning coaches and a lot of other coaches is they avoid the one score game altogether. So it's interesting. Guys like Gene Stallings and Les Miles and Mark Richt and Tommy Tuberville don't necessarily avoid the one score games. You look at a guy like Stallings, 42% of the games that he was in were one score games, but he won 71% of those. So he was able to, but you don't think of Gene Stallings as a legend. Well, and you don't think of him as a legend at Alabama. Same thing for Les Miles. Like, you don't think of him in the same breath as Nick Saban, even though the guy won national championships at LSU, won multiple SEC championships. Mark Richt is the guy who set the table for Kirby Smart, won a couple of SEC championships, but again, 40% one-score games. So now compare it to the legends, right? Steve Spurrier, 19% of his games were one-score games. Kirby Smart, 23%. Nick Saban, 23%. Urban Meyer, 26%. They actually weren't especially great in one score games overall. So Spurrier is 61% of the time he won the one score games, 62% for Saban, 62% for Urban Meyer, 68% for Kirby. He's had a little bit more luck in those games. The thing is, is that they've just avoided the one score games altogether. And when we talk about recruiting and we talk about bringing in better athletes, in many ways, that's what we're talking about is we're talking about being able to avoid those one score games. Interestingly, Mullen is the guy who was the best at it out of the coaches who failed at Florida or who, who have not reached the heights of Spurrier or or Urban Meyer. So Billy Napier, 36% of his games have been one score games. Dan Mullen was at 29%. McElwain, 35%. Muschamp, 39%. Zook, 49%. Interestingly, 
McIlwain won 75% of his one-score games. That's why he was able to float as long as he was, even though the talent had seriously degraded at that point. Some of that had to do with the fact that he had McIlwain's defenses those first two years and was able to pull out, you know, nine to seven over Vanderbilt. But you look at Napier, he's only won 44% of his one-score games. Mullins won 43%. Muschamp won 47%. Zook won 50%. So what you're looking at is you're looking at 50-50 propositions. Every time you get into a one-score game, unless you've got some, some magical pixie dust that allows you to win those games more often, most coaches don't have that. Like Even the truly elite of the elite are only winning 55 or 60% of those one-score games. So the key is avoiding it. And if you look at Alabama this year, the games they lost – were and so I guess Alabama two years ago they lost two games by four points that's why they weren't in the playoff this year they lose the game to Michigan in overtime right it's a one score game could have gone either way and that's sort of the point is when you get in those games it can go either way one turnover one botch snap one drive that you you know you go backwards instead of your you you're in field goal range you take a sack and all of a sudden you're out of field goal range one tipped pass that happens to get caught by the opposition and they're able to take it the other way. Like those sorts of things start to kill you and you're never going to be perfect. So the thing is, if you're up by 21, you make a mistake. Nobody knows as you win by 14. If you're up by seven and you make a mistake, all of a sudden it's tied. And that's, that's the thing is it's pretty clear from the data that the elite coaches avoid those one score games. Now you could say that that's just because they have better teams, but I think that's sort of the point, right? Is it's, it's a clear demarcation between the guys that you look at and go, these are the legends of the sec. Like smart is on his way. Saban is there, Meyer is there, and Spurrier is definitely there. And all four of those guys separate themselves, interestingly, from Saban at LSU. He was 30% one-score games at LSU. Orgeron, 34%. Fulmer, 36%. Chiswick, 37%. Mike DeBose for Alabama, 38%. Malzahn, 39%. Tuberville, 39%. Rick, 40%. Les Miles, 41%. And Gene Stallings, 42%. So the, the comparison I make in the article is actually Clemson. Because Clemson started out under Dabo in essentially, you know, forty percent of their games being really, really close, and then when Taj Boyd took over, that ended. <laughs> and ever since then, Dabo Swinney has had a very similar profile to guys like Saban and Smart and that sort of stuff in terms of avoiding the one-score game. So, I think there's hope from the Florida side because we've got Lagway coming in, because there's there's. Um, you know, precedent of elite quarterback play leading to being able to avoid these sorts of things. But certainly Napier has not proven an ability to um, to coach his way to an advantage in these one-score games. And so avoiding them is going to be the best strategy. And you do that with recruiting and you do that with quarterback play. And obviously, given where the recruiting has been so far, it's going to be DJ Lagway who, uh, who separates Florida if they're able to do that. Right. <laughs> going to hear that a lot. This this offseason, it starts and finishes with DJ Lagway. Well, look, I mean, Washington, uh, right? I mean, Washington with Penix. Like yeah. that guy, that guy was just unbelievable the other night. And does that Washington team win if he's I mean, every time they threw a deep ball, it was right on the guy's right on the guy's shoulders. And you're just like, God, you couldn't place the ball there any better. And having a guy who can do that makes all the difference in the world for a team. And and Washington this year's eight and oh in one score games. They've had that pixie dust. Part of that pixie dust is they've got a quarterback who who probably should have won the Heisman Trophy, and um, you know when when you factor all that stuff together, that that Washington team is nine and three without Michael Penix, maybe, right? I mean, with an average quarterback, if you switch Penix and Mertz, 
what do these teams look like in terms of their overall record? I think we'll you'd find say out that, next year. Uh, Will Rogers committed to Washington for next season, <laughs> so we'll find out. My favorite, my favorite. He'll probably pull a bone next, and all of a sudden be great. But um, my the point obviously is that um, you know quarterback play is a prerequisite for overcoming recruiting that is substandard. But to me, the way you can tell whether a coach has it or not is not necessarily, is it a fire drill on the sidelines in a one score game? It's, do we just not play those one score games all the time? Because if you're constantly having to fight, if you're constantly being South Carolina 42 to 39 and going, whoo, boy, we got lucky to pull that one out. Inevitably, on the other side, two or three games later, you're going to be going, I can't believe we missed the field goal against Arkansas. And mm. that's what we had this year. What we had this year was that Napier is not has not shown an ability to like to differentiate Florida in those close games. So you have a game against Arkansas where you're like, wow, we should have won that game. But then you have a game against South Carolina where you're like, I don't know how we pulled that one out. And so it just kind of evens out over the course of the year. Florida ends up five and seven because that's who they were. And there's maybe, I, I think you could, you could, you could, they probably should have pulled out that Missouri game, obviously the fourth and 17 and all that sort of stuff should have pulled that one out. Maybe should have been six and six, maybe a little bit unlucky. Um, and maybe you attribute that to Napier as well. And if you're going to gaff in those one score games, you better avoid them <laughs> because, because, you know, look, I mean, Kirby smart, I think played like seven or eight one score games that first year he was at Georgia and they went eight and five. And the next year, 12 of the 13 games were blowouts. Now, one of them was in the opposite direction. I think Auburn spanked them. But, you know, they were not playing one-score games anymore. They found their quarterback in from. They established the talent that they had. They obviously had more talent from Mark Richt, who was there before Smart was there. But um, but that was what changed in year two, is they were no longer playing those close games. And again, a lot of that has to do with development. A lot of that has to do with recruiting. A large portion of that has to do with the quarterback position. So, a little bit of both sides for the article. I think there's there's evidence that um, that, that Napier's profile thus far is significantly substandard. I don't think anybody is surprised at that, considering that Florida's been six and seven and five and seven in his first two years. But there's hope on the back end of elite quarterback play can get you to where you need to be. And uh, you know, obviously, that's going to hinge on DJ Lagway, and uh, I'm excited to see what he can do this next year. We shall see. Like you said in the article, though, it's it's feeling like it's on a razor's edge uh, for for this uh, for this to come through in, in the type of way you're talking about here in this article. Well, so uh, it's it's a big jump from going to six and six to uh, winning the majority of your games with blowouts. But hey, there's a lot of talent coming in. We saw some of that. Did, did you get a chance to catch any of the highlights or uh, from the All American game today? From, I, from I caught armor. some on Twitter. It looked like Miles Graham played really, really well. It looked like Aaron yeah. Childs played really well, which is great because Florida's linebackers have been terrible over the past like decade. Um, you know, the Can't last line those guys. Yeah, I mean, David Reese maybe is the last linebacker I can think of who was a difference maker on the inside. Even he struggled in coverage a little bit. Um, maybe the the last true guy at linebacker who was a difference maker was uh, Antonio Morrison. Maybe um, Jared Davis, those guys. Um, Anzalone, I would say, except that he never played um, when he was at Florida. He was just injured a lot while he was there. Um, still ends up getting drafted now as a difference maker for the Lions. But, you know, you think about those sorts of guys. We haven't had anybody like that come through the program in a while. Um, you know, everything I everything I saw about Lagway this week in practice was that he was just lighting it up. I don't think there's any doubt that guy's talented. The question is going to be, can that translate in the SEC early? 
And because that's that's the razor's edge. The razor's edge to me isn't is Lagway going to be a competent SEC player? I think he will be. The question is going to be: Can he be an elite SEC player? And can he be an elite SEC player right away? And because that's what that's what's necessary, right? I mean, when you start thinking about um, the pressure that's going to be on Billy Napier to deliver, the pressure that's going to be on the defense. If they've got a freshman quarterback in there, the defense is going to have to get that much better. And at some point, you just need your quarterback to make plays. And, uh, you know, if it's if it's Graham Mertz playing in November, um, the defense has either gotten a lot better or you're going to have an angry fan base. That's sort of the two options. So, uh, you know, yeah, I, I think um, – I think it was sort of a mixed review that I saw on Twitter from uh, for Lagway's performance, but but for Miles and Childs, it was uh, Miles Graham and, and Aaron Childs. It was rave reviews from the linebackers, and let's be honest, that's what Florida needs. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Well, well, there was there was a coach a couple of years ago that a lot of people wrote off in terms of doing big things here at Michigan. Jim Harbaugh and the Wolverines end up going to the national title game with the twenty seven twenty. Overtime win over Alabama in the Rose Bowl. It wasn't the prettiest game of football you've ever seen in your life. Bama fails to top the 300-yard mark, but Michigan go. It, Michigan gets it done in the end. Michigan wasn't much better uh, on offense, though. Two for 11 on third down. Uh, they converted a key fourth and two from their own 40-yard line when quarterback J.J. McCarthy found a wide-open Blake Corum in the flats. Corum rumbled down the sideline for a 27-yard gain. Two plays later, wide receiver Roman Wilson made an outstanding leaping catch, followed by a nice run to take it down to the Bama five-yard line. Wilson scores on a short reception with about, with about a minute and a half left to tie the game at 20 apiece. In overtime, Corum uses his vision, cuts back, weaves his way through the defense, and ends up breaking through for the go-ahead score. Bama answers back. They get down to the Michigan three-yard line, face a fourth and goal, and arguably a busted play where maybe it was a run pass option. Maybe it wasn't. We've heard different things. Saban seemed to indicate it was not. Saban seemed to indicate that it was a run, but either way, it looked like a low snap cost Jalen Milrow. Uh, maybe, maybe the opportunity to kind of slow down and, and read the blocks in front of him ends up just going straight up the middle and getting crushed by the Michigan defense. Bama loses uh, in, in really the type of game that you've seen Alabama win over and over again. Probably the biggest Michigan win in our lifetime. Well, I, I'm trying to think back to it. I know the 97 win over Washington State put Michigan over the top for a half a national title, but this is the first outright national championship Michigan's going to play for next Monday since the Truman administration in 1948. <laughs> Well, it's killing you, isn't it? It's an Ohio State guy. I mean, I've watched uh, Georgia do it the last few years, man. Florida State went undefeated. It's just been it, – football's <laughs> been tough the last couple of years, man. And yet we, we show up and do this show every week still, though, Will. I'm showing my face. I'm still showing my face. Well, I mean, look, I, I think Michigan um, – congrats to them, right? I mean, they've been on the doorstep of this sort of thing, obviously gotten boat raced by by – Georgia a couple years ago and then um the 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 loss to TCU last year but they were going to get boat raced by Georgia again if if they had beaten TCU um you know all the controversy this year the sign stealing Harbaugh being suspended at the beginning and the end of the season obviously that sort of stuff sort of galvanizes the team and brings them together we were just talking about Lagway coming into Florida well look McCarthy coming into Michigan he That's was a 
He was a five-star guy who took over. Who was the guy who led him to the playoff two years ago? Um, yeah, he played McNamara. Cade McNamara. Iowa. Yep. Cade, yep, Cade yep. McNamara was the starter, right? And it takes some stones to say, look, this guy just led us to the playoff, but J.J. McCarthy's going to come in. He's going to be the guy who leads us the rest of the way and has led him to the playoff the last two years as well. Um, obviously, the COVID year was kind of weird overall. Harbaugh usually wears that as welcome by this point, so maybe having the COVID yeah, year where they couldn't. Might have done it. Well, maybe a little bit. And Feinbaum was saying the other day that he expects Harbaugh to be in the NFL the day after the national championship game. He might be right. uh, He might be right. But again, I mean, that sort of feels like an Urban Meyer situation, right? Where would you trade? Would you trade sort of the the investigations that are going to come afterwards in exchange for a national title? Uh, Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't, I suppose, depending upon the fan that you are. But, um, you know, I I think it was interesting to me. I I don't think anybody expected Alabama to beat Georgia in the SEC championship game. The fact that they were able to beat them um, and beat them up front was the thing that was surprising. Michigan beat beat Alabama up front in this game the entire game. Milrow, especially in the first half, was running for his life, constantly sacked. Alabama could not throw the ball. And you think about the Alabama teams for the past, what, decade at this point. Um, Jalen Hurts was probably the last guy that they had who was more of a runner back there. And even he was a more advanced passer, I think, than Jalen Milrow is right now. This is a reloading Alabama team that just won the SEC championship game and came within an overtime of making it to the to the actual national championship game. So, um, you know, there's a lot of work to do for teams like Florida. That's one one of the messages I take out of this. And people are saying Saban slipped because they lost in the playoff. I, I'll be interested to see what happens when we go to 12 next year, whether there are more upsets. Because it's not like the 12th team in the country never beats the number one team in the country. It's just probably like a 70-30 proposition. In this case, the teams that were undefeated all year long found a way to get a win, and I think maybe in some ways that's the lesson too, and as much as it pains me to say, that was always the point for Florida State is you you found a way to win all your games. Alabama didn't, but you know, I'm also glad that they put the SEC in because I'm pretty sure it would have nuked the entire system if the SEC got left out of the playoffs. So, uh, you know, at least we still have college football. (laughs) Well. I think uh, I think Georgia. Speaking of nukes, we'll get to the Orange Bowl in a few minutes here. But Washington, Texas, ba- Bama, Michigan in the Rose Bowl, fantastic setting, great great time. I love when these games are on New Year's Day too. Enough of this New Year's Eve stuff. Put it on New Year's Day in the right spot. Really enjoyed it. Although January second, every year, like I just for, I just don't take that off work. I got to do that. Well, like I, I got I got to like lock in one of these years and, and take January second off. I but. You know, you, you focus on that holiday time on the front end. You don't focus so much on the back end with it. Washington beats Texas, though. Late game on the East Coast here. 37-31. to 31. I think you texted me. We were swapping texts during the game. I think you had said at one point, watching Michael Penix reminds me of playing NCAA football on the, on, on Xbox, man. I, I like You talk about a guy who could just, from any different angle, Get it out to his receivers on a on the dot almost every single time. Well, in that second half, down the stretch, particularly in the fourth quarter, I'm watching the game going, why are they not running the ball? There was one drive where they didn't waste but maybe 45 seconds off the clock and ended up putting it back to Texas. I think that's part of the reason why Texas got the got back in the game. They they're giving some extra opportunities. Washington held the ball. I think Texas ran five plays the entire third quarter. Sark said in the interview there, and you go back and look at that, five plays in the entire third quarter, that's crazy. But Washington ends up 
trusting Michael Penix. They were going to go down swinging, doing what they do best. They trusted the quarterback. They had some great receivers running all over the place in New Orleans. Texas did get it together. They fought back. They have that great play down in the end zone where, hey, you're throwing a jump ball to the guy you want to throw a jump ball to in, in Mitchell, and uh, the DB comes right over the top and swats it. Just a beautiful play by the defensive back. Washington holds on 37-31 in the Sugar Bowl to advance to the national championship game. Yeah, if this had been Florida and Texas's stead, I'd be absolutely crestfallen. Like, so CJ Baxter fumbles like the first play coming out of halftime. Um, I think Washington scored coming out of halftime, but then the first play for Texas, mm -hmm. they handed off their five star CJ Baxter, goes through the line, gets hit, fumbles. Um, Washington takes over and is able to score from there. Then later on, they're driving down the field. I think they were down 10, driving down the field. Nice little screen pass to Blue, their other running back. Mm -hmm. He breaks it. He's going maybe 15, 20 yards downfield. He fumbles the ball as well. Um, so those two fumbles combined with it's like, I'm not quite sure the thing that's going to get lost in the great play on fourth down is that on first down, they threw a swing pass out to the outside that had zero shot of scoring. And if he'd caught it and hadn't gotten out of bounds, it would have been the clock running out and they wouldn't have had four shots at the end zone. And to me, those were the things is the fade on the last throw. Um, some of the other throws that they made in that drive, um, not necessarily high percentage plays when you're going for that score in the end zone. Um, you know, look, I think again, if you play this game eight out of 10 times, I, I think Texas wins, mm -hmm. but the turnovers that Texas had that third quarter where, I mean, it was just dominated by turnovers. I mean, Texas, I think turned the ball over twice in the third quarter, or at least the other, the second fumble was in the fourth quarter, maybe, but like you said, didn't have their hands on the ball at all. Um, and then Texas, obviously pretty lucky. Um, you, you never want to see an injury, but no timeouts. They Washington runs the ball on third down. They're going to run it down to like 10 or 15 seconds and then punt and their running back gets injured. And so they end up with like 45 or 50 seconds that Texas gets the ball back, able to drive down and make it a game there at the end. Again, this is just what Washington does. Penix hits guys downfield, chucking the ball downfield. The, the Madden comment was when you, to me, it was when you up a level in Madden, like when you go from beginner to intermediate or, or when you, when you raise the level, all of a sudden the defense is moving faster and all you can kind of do sometimes is just chuck the ball up. <laughs> And that's what it felt like a few times when they got one-on-one -on -one coverage. That was where Penix was going. He's like, I see the one-on-one. -on -one. I'm going downfield. I'm going to make a perfect throw. Did it over and over and over again. But I'll tell you, the most impressive throw he made was there was a play where Texas got immediate pressure. And he he moved to his right before the pressure got to him and then threw a strike right down the center of the field to his tight end coming across the middle. That is the kind of play that we didn't see from Jalen Milrow. That's the kind of play that we didn't see from J.J. McCarthy, and that's the kind of play we didn't see from Quinn Ewers. And you start talking about why Penix maybe should have won the Heisman. Obviously, he finished a second, plenty of accolades. But when you talk about why a guy like Penix is thought of in that regard, that was the thing that impressed me the most to move off platform, make just absolute strikes while avoiding the pass rush in a way that looked incredibly athletic. It wasn't like he was running and all of a sudden decided to throw it. It was, he knew where he is, where his hole was in the pocket to find that hole, to exploit the thing down the middle, knew exactly where his guy was. And it wasn't a little check down. It was an aggressive throw over the middle and he was able to do that sort of stuff. So look, I, I followed Penix when he was in Indiana. My dad went to IU. So, uh, um, plus the fact that he was from, from Florida and was helping 
helping Indiana win meant that I was sitting there going, what are you doing, Jim McElwain? Or what are you doing, Dan Mullen? Bring that guy in. Um, Tampa but, Bay. Uh, He's from yeah. Tampa. Tampa Bay Tech. Well, not not unusual for Florida to miss on a player from the state of Florida, as we were talking about earlier. But, uh, you know, look, sometimes these three-star guys turn out to be stars. We've seen it with guys like Baker Mayfield and and, and some of the other guys who've come through. Um, Penix turned into that guy, goes out to Washington for Kalen DeBoer, transfers out there and becomes an immediate star last year and then just a superstar this year. That's the reason Washington's in the national championship game. It's going to be fun to see them take on Michigan really a theme throughout these playoffs and i know people are sick of hearing about patience around florida but if you look around these playoffs you got schools like texas it's been a minute since they've been uh relevant will they're they're back in it washington michael Penix. how many injuries season ending injuries have we had three was it a shoulder and two knees yeah uh, i mean guy, this yes guy's but been not college football forever and then michigan who had a terrible season during the COVID year. Alabama's the only consistent one of the bunch that's been that's been here over and over again. So you're seeing that these programs can get it together, can put put together enough of a roster, some kind of advantage. Hey, look, top to bottom, does that Washington roster stack up to ta- Texas, Michigan, or Alabama? I don't think so. But the weapons they have on the outside, they have a, some high end talent on that football team out at Washington. And that and the quarterback play is just outstanding in that offense. Everything fits well together. And they just played a really clean game right here. And they're able to make this kind of run. It's more it goes, you talk about the one score wins though, too. It, it it's more uh things falling your way, which has to happen in a championship season, than it is something you can repeat over and over again at Washington. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think Washington made the playoff with Jake Browning years ago. Um, they they didn't make it beyond the Final Four, but they were able to make it to the playoffs. So it's not as though this is an unfamiliar place for Washington to be. Washington's won a national title in its history. So, again, not necessarily a place that you don't expect Washington to be. Um you start looking at the recruiting aspect of this. Michigan is second in the Big Ten Conference. Clemson has always been second in the conference. Um, Washington is in that second to third in the conference. That's really where you're looking. You start to see a drop-off in consistency from, from second to third. And and the other aspect of it is, is look, Washington's gotten really lucky this year. You go 8-0 in one-score games. There are games that you should have lost that you didn't. And, um, you know, you put those magical things together and that's great. Auburn in 2010 was the same way with Cam Newton. Great quarterback play, seven one-score wins, including the win in the BCS championship game, I think, against Oregon. Um, sometimes the stars align and you get that, but look at how quickly Auburn fell from that peak when they won the national championship. So that's going to be the that the argument for recruiting to me has always been: are you looking to sustain championship level performance? Or are you looking to catch lightning in a bottle and then peak? And then have a rapid descent as well. And, you know, Alabama certainly is one of those teams where, (laughs) like, the Tide are looking at this year as a failure because they made the playoff and lost in the semifinal. Georgia is looking at this year as a a failure because they're going to finish, what, fifth in the country, maybe fourth in the country. And, um, you know, that's sort of where I think Florida fans want to be is have that consistent type of winning, but that doesn't mean that you never have somebody who's unexpected going in there. This year has been a little bit strange, right? It's also strange. Um, 
you know, our historical norms for college football have always been tied to guys who are only here for four years. We've still got COVID quarterbacks, right? Like Penix wouldn't still be in college this year. I don't think if it hadn't been for the COVID no. year no. and you got, you got a guy like Bo Nix who wouldn't have been in college if it wasn't for the COVID year. Graham Mertz next year wouldn't have been in college if it wasn't for the COVID year. So we've sort of got that extension where we've got like 24 and 25 year old guys playing in college football now. And that has changed the dynamic a little bit. And I'm sure it's changed the dynamic in other places. You combine that with the transfer portal. And obviously we have to evaluate rosters a little bit differently, but um, look, it's not as though Washington is untalented. It's just a question of what do you need to piece it all together? And I think the combination of DeBoer and Penix sort of brings it all together. And I'll be really interested to see some of the wide receivers who are still around next year when Michael Penix isn't around, you know, it's, it's great that you can get a foot of separation on a corner. But your quarterback has to be able to put it right on your hands when you get only a foot of separation. There were multiple plays in that game against Texas where I didn't think the guy was open. And the ball comes down, and I'm like, oh, that's going to get knocked down. And lo and behold, it fell right in the guy's breadbasket. It ends up being a catch. I think a lot of Washington's offensive performance is tied to Penix. And, you know, look, they've been fortunate, but they've also been – um, very timely in terms of what they've been able to do this year. And I, I think you'd be probably pretty uh, – I, I think it's a bad idea to bet against Washington at this point, given what they've been able to do so far. Well, I, going into the Texas game, I thought, can Washington run the ball against the Texas defensive front? I just thought Texas would have the advantage along the line. And the answer was they they ran the ball for 31 times 102 yards. So the answer was pretty much no, but they didn't have to. Penix goes for 430, and they're just throwing the ball all over the yard, and they really stuck with it. That's what I said. In the key moments down the stretch, they were going to go down swinging with that passing game. I think it's going to be a similar situation against Michigan here, except I don't think Michigan's got the type of offense. What surprised me with Texas is is that they they weren't able to put up more points. We talked about those two key turnovers. I really expected this game to be a shootout, and obviously 37-31 to 31 with Washington Texas was at an absolute shootout toward the end. But Texas was stagnant for different points of the game. They were they were slowed down for different points. The turnovers helped uh, keeping the ball, just keeping the, playing keep away. Washington had the ball for over 36 and a half minutes in that game. So a lot of things went their way in that Sugar Bowl. They're going to have to put on a similar performance against this Michigan team, but the benefit they have, is this Wolverines team's not nearly as explosive on offense as Texas was? Maybe. I, I think the one of the things that was pretty apparent in the Big Ten, especially when you started looking at the different bowls, is that the Big Ten had a quarterback problem this year. And it was unclear to me coming into the coming into bowl season and kind of made me lean Alabama. I think last week on Stand Up and Holler, I picked Michigan, but I was starting to lean towards Alabama as the game got closer because you had Iowa getting absolutely boat raced by Tennessee. You had, uh, you know, some of the Ohio State getting beat, though obviously well, Ohio State was playing. tell me you just found out that Iowa's got a quarterback problem. <laughs> well, but no, I didn't just find out they have a quarterback problem. But the question is, is the quarterback – are the quarterbacks bad? And is that why Michigan? So if you look at the top five FBS defenses this year, you had Penn state, Iowa, Ohio state, Michigan, and Nebraska were in like the top seven. I think she so had five big 10 teams in the top seven. Um, and that's, that's, that's FBS, not power five right. FBS. Right. So you have some, you know, <laughs> Wichita state or something Definitely in there down year for quarterbacks down. in big 10. No doubt. So the big 10 quarterbacks were so bad that you're like, okay, is Michigan's defense really that good? And 
I still don't know because I'm not entirely sure how good Jalen Milrow is, though Milrow was really good in the SEC last year, or this past year, especially the second half of the year. So with it, but with a month to prepare and knowing what Alabama wants to do and look again, Michigan, one score game that could have absolutely gone Alabama's way. Right. I mean, there, there's no doubt that if that fourth down pass gets dropped, if they happen to have a bad snap on the fourth down, if Alabama plays that fourth down better, if Alabama doesn't have the two bad snaps in the third quarter that drive them out of field goal range, um, and they're a, they're ahead by 10 when Michigan's going forward on fourth down, there's a lot of stuff that could have gone Alabama's way where that could have been a, easily an Alabama victory. Um, and But I still think that Michigan throughout the year has been the best team in the country. They've actually been battling with Oregon in terms of efficiency numbers, defense, offense, EPA, you know, expected points added, those sorts of things. And Washington was the team that was sort of leaning on its offense to overcome the warts on the defensive side of the ball. Um, Washington has a better offense than Michigan. There's no doubt about that. But is are they going to be able to, against an elite defense like Michigan, are they going to be able to lean on Penix? Penix is different than Milrow, right? I mean, and obviously you only have a week to prepare. I think both of those things are in Washington's favor. But again, I I lean Michigan on this one. I think Penix is going to probably play pretty well. But I I think defense isn't going to doesn't take a week off. If Penix misses a few throws that he hit against uh, that he hit against Texas, all of a sudden this game looks completely different. And I don't think you're going to be able to count on Michigan making critical critical turnovers, making just boneheaded plays along the course of the along the course of the game, like Texas did. Ewers looked really bad in the first quarter, especially, but in the first half overall and sort of spotted, I mean, I think it was 21-21, but it was like a miracle that it was 21-21 at the half. And and Ewers didn't play very well. Had he played well, Texas might've been up by a touchdown or two heading into the second half. Instead, it's a tie game. And then, and then obviously Washington's able to take advantage. Yeah, definitely wasn't his best game, but Texas, I, my thought was after Alabama lost, it's like, man, Texas, if they win this, if if they beat Washington, I, I, th- I thought Texas was kind of going to be the team to beat after that. If they get this done, are they going to start? Are they going to start a run here under Stark? Because it just seems like things are going in the right direction out in Austin. But we'll see how they do when they uh, don't get a load up with the Iowa States of the world next year on that schedule. Well, That's going to be a little tougher. And they have a quarterback controversy. So, uh, you know, see how they manage that. Not according to the media. They're all interviewing Arch. They're all, all over <laughs> on that side of the field, just ignoring Quinn Ewers. Did you see that picture where he's sitting at the table by himself, turning around, looking I at did. the scrum around Arch Manning? That's I did. a great photo. They're all like, they're all like, Arch, are you going to transfer? I'm like, they ought to be looking over at Ewers and be like, are you going to transfer? I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a good problem to have out of Texas. That's for sure. Uh, so yeah, you got Michigan winning this game against Washington. I think so. I, I think it'll be another close game. I think the the luck of Washington is going to run out against the defense that has the ability to force some turnovers. Um, I think Michigan's going to be able to run the ball against Washington, which is something that that Texas just really could do, but couldn't stay on the field enough to do. And uh, you know, if, if you're able to run the ball, if you're able to keep Penix off the field, and if you're able to convert. Um, long drives for touchdowns. I think you can you can win that game, and I think 
all the the suspension stuff around Michigan, um, it wouldn't be a college football season if we didn't have controversy. So having the having a controversial national champion who'd been who's been accused of cheating in two different ways during the season, really to cap off the playoff season with NIL, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> it's just appropriate, man. Just appropriate. I doubted Washington against Oregon, the Pac-12 title game. I doubted Washington against Texas. They won both of those. I'm going to doubt them again and hope they win this one against Michigan. But I think Michigan does get it done. Harbaugh rides off into the sunset, gets on the microphone after the game, says, I did it all to the NCAA. Heads and then out, goes off that, to coach the Chargers. Takes that Chargers job. Takes that Chargers job on, on Tuesday like five Bob, said, five Bob says. I like that. I like that scenario. I'm okay with it. I can live with that scenario. But uh yeah, Michigan, I think they got I think they got too much on that defense, and I do think they will slow down the Huskies. If Washington would have to play a near perfect game like they did against Texas and, and build up that lead to hold on uh to have a shot against Michigan, I think. But it'll be a good it'll be a good look at uh, the future Big Ten here, Will. All Big Ten championship. Do they even play football in the South anymore? I don't know. People are talking. People are talking. We got to get that claim back, man. We got to get that claim back. The SEC, no SEC team in the national title. How about that? That's something Look, you need anybody to using this playoff as a reference for the SEC. Like, I, I love the Florida State fans who are sitting there like, see, we would have beaten Michigan. I'm like, that was about as close a game as you can get against a team that everybody pretty much consistently like consensus had as the number one or number two team in the country all year long. And Alabama just came off beating the team that was the consensus number one team in the country. So, you know, I I think Alabama acquitted themselves pretty well in that game, certainly made some mistakes. There were some things that had they cleaned up, they probably win that game. But, uh, but to, to, to look at that game as a referendum, it's not like Alabama lost by three touchdowns. Milrow threw a bunch of interceptions and, and, and things were bad. The, the fact that they were comparing the yardage that Milrow threw against Michigan to the yardage that, uh, that what Brock Glenn threw against Georgia. <laughs> Whatever helps like... you sleep at night, man. Whatever helps you sleep at night. I, Look, the best team in college football did not make the playoff this year. We do know that, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second here. But let's talk about the rest of the bowl game. So that's the playoffs. That's the national look at the national title game here. At one point last week, I'm sitting there like you, you got you got a, a great slate of games on a couple of the days where it, it might not look like a great slate on paper, but then you, you get you just start following along throughout the week. You get sucked in that week between Christmas and New Year, right? At one point last week, Rutgers beats Miami in Yankee Stadium and just leave the the chaos chaos on the the Miami side of things at this point. They're going to be – is there going to be more tension in any game next year than there will be for that Florida-Miami kickoff between those two fan bases? That's going to be a rough situation for whatever coach walks out on the losing end of that game uh, on August 31st in the Swamp. But you have Rutgers beat Miami. You have an edible Pop-Tart mascot that took over the world with his inspirational message as he's going down to the toaster to be eaten. Hilarious marketing stunt. Those people did a great job at the Pop-Tarts Bowl. And then the Alamo Bowl that night was like an old school feel to to yeah, that game. I used to love the Alamo Bowl when I was a kid. For whatever reason... The Alamo Bowl used to just have these great games, and it was always on late. And I just 
always felt like I that was a game I was always drawn to most years. But it kind of had this old school feel to Bull Week for a minute. After listening to all these opt outs and talking about transfer portals for a couple of weeks, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. But then Friday night comes along. Ohio State loses their second string quarterback, goes down to the third string quarterback, just can't even move the ball. Awful game. Comes out after the game. There's a podcast that's been deleted where a Buckeye player is talking about the uh, lack of practices up there and who knows what's true and what's not, but didn't sound like th- their head was totally in that game. And then you have Florida State, who also put up three points, but the issue is they gave up 63, Will. So I, I don't like talking on behalf of Georgia here, but what that was such an embarrassing performance for Florida State. And I really do understand the hard feelings about the playoffs. They were royal, like royally screwed. I, I thought they should have been in the playoffs, but the best response would have been to show up and play that game against Georgia and make a statement. Make a statement. I really do think that'd be the best response. They missed an opportunity to do that, but I thought Georgia was going to win the game and win handily, even if Florida State showed up at a hundred percent. But not, I didn't think it would be as ugly as it was. It just was a just a full steamroll, full effect. Georgia that looked incredible and I I realize it's a lot of backups playing backups and there's not much to read into this game but you had one team that missed the playoffs that said we're going to go out and treat this game really serious and play really hard and you had one team that totally checked out so I hate that the bull system is in a place where it incentivizes that type of behavior to opt out to check out on a personal side you know if that's your brother if that's your son you're you're advising him to not risk an NFL career over, over a bowl game. I, I understand all that stuff, but I look at it from the bowl perspective. And and I think the bulls should have the opportunity to decide not be locked into these contracts with conferences anymore, but tell the teams that give us your pitch for why you should come play. The, what an embar- the orange bowl is not going to deal with that much more with the playoff system. Like I know it's not totally set on how the playoffs going to be, but I have to imagine the Orange Bowl is going to be in the mix far more often than not, or if, or potentially every single year. But a, a bowl game that's outside the playoffs, because bowls will continue to exist in some capacity, should have the ability to not be locked in with the conference and to should have teams pitch while they should come play for them. Who's going to be opting out? What's like so you can have two teams that actually want to be there? Will that's really the thing at the end of the day is this obligatory no-show performance like we saw the Gators put on a Cotton Bowl a couple of years ago. That stuff's got to end. We got to figure out a way to get that out of the bowl system. And I don't have the perfect solution for it, but I, that's one idea that I haven't heard talked about. Well, so um, two things there. You talked about watching a bunch of those games, the game with the Pop-Tart, all that sort of stuff. I watched probably, I don't know, 10% of all of the bowls before the playoffs games. Uh, and I'm a college football fanatic, right? I love this stuff. I'm always the guy saying you only get 12 of these and all that sort of stuff. And I don't want to watch it because I'm sitting there going, I can't tell anything like Tennessee with I'm a leave it quarterback instead of Joe Milton. I can't evaluate what that win means in 
in the context of the 2023 season, right? Now they beat the hell out of Iowa and Iowa had all their guys or most of their guys. And so maybe, it, maybe you can't evaluate it, but you can't because they could have beaten Iowa by 60 if they had Milton as the quarterback, right? Same thing with the Florida state Georgia game. You know, Florida state had a lot of guys opt out, obviously Rotemaker leaving the Jordan Travis injury. You're already down to your third string quarterback at the same time, Georgia doesn't have Bowers. They had all sorts of guys who had opted out as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not as though they were immune from that sort of stuff as well and and when their second stringers and third stringers were in the second half they still beat the crap out of florida state so it's not as though um that game was going to be close regardless because again to your point there's um there's a motivational factor that ties into the stuff as well and one thing i will say about kirby is he's pretty good at getting his guys ready to go and getting the juice running um the interesting thing is is that the ratings for the georgia florida state game were like the highest orange bowl rating since like 2017 but that only lasts so long. So the analogy I used on Gators Breakdown the other night was the Jackass movies. That like the first Jackass movie, but maybe a better one is the Saw movies, right? Like the first Saw was sort of inventive and unique and the contraptions and all that sort of stuff. Like that's interesting. But this year they just released Saw 10. Like Saw 10 has a very specific <laughs> audience. It is not this broad-based thing that like is growing the audience. And to me, that's the problem with the bowl games is that the bowl games in their current configuration are the 10th edition of the Saw movies rather than Saw 1. The Pop-Tart Bowls. <laughs> the Pop-Tart Bowl. So the mascot <laughs> gets eaten. Pop-Tart Bowls 10. So if you're going to do something like oh, that, yeah. then fine. And it gets some social media buzz and all that sort of stuff. I get that you want to reward players for a season well-played and all that stuff. But honestly, Gator Dave has the best idea that I've heard for this entire thing, which is instead of having that week zero kickoff stuff where you play a non-conference team that you've scheduled beforehand, just play your bowl game. So play I I love Gator Dave. I hate even saying anything against him, Will, but that's that's that idea. What the bowl games have always been first off, there's traditions around the bowl games, like the Rose Bowl is around the Rose Parade in Pasadena, California on January 1st, right? So there are certain traditions that exist. There's reasons why they exist at that time of year. All right. Number two, like if Florida State played Georgia in, in an orange bowl in August. Like, I mean, it'd be a great game. It'd be a great matchup, but it should be a reward for the teams that got there. It has I mean, I get what you're, I get what you're saying, but you, you're, you're making a traditionalist argument when the entire sport has, is, has shifted to a four team playoff that's completely devalued all of the other bowl games and is about to shift to a 12 game, 12 team playoff that will further devalue all the bowl games. The reason that this is the way it is, is not because, um, you know, society has changed in all these different ways. And I mean, that's some of it, but the reason that it's changed, the reason these guys are opting out is because a few guys opted out. It became acceptable to do so. And because the games don't mean anything. So they mean something to the community and that's fine. And I get what you're saying in terms of, oh, well, if Florida state's going to opt out to the orange bowl, then the orange bowl can opt out and invite old miss or something. And, right. and you know, you can have let's, that sort of, that sort of game. Let's see a team that wants to be there. But again, now how do you actually gauge that? If Florida State has five guys who opt out instead of 10, like, you know, like if you're trying to reward the guys on the team, then you're going to penalize the guy who plays left guard because the quarterback and the wide receiver and the and the defensive end decided to decided to um decide to opt out. There just isn't a good solution 
when you put all the emphasis on the playoff. That's just the reality. And college football used to be a regional sport where the Rose Bowl was important to the Big Ten and the Pac the Pac Ten at the time. Yep. And that was their bowl game. The Cotton Bowl was important to various entities that got into there. The Orange Bowl was important to those entities. At this point, they've completely changed and devalued it. So this idea that like we can have this idealistic view of what bowl games are supposed to be. The problem is they are not that anymore. The other thing is I'm not saying get rid of the get rid of the Rose Bowl parade because the Rose Bowl is going to be part of this 12 team playoff. There's no reason you can't have it be part of the 12 team playoff. But the Shreveport, Louisiana, Poland Weed Eater Bowl, why not play Louisiana versus you know versus Virginia Tech? to start off the year next year. Cause that's the thing, right? Is we're sitting here looking at next year's schedule going, God, Miami and Florida state non-conference, like that's rough, but you could have something where you go, look, Florida didn't make a bowl. So you don't have to play that hideous non-conference game to start the year. Hey, like somebody went 12 and two. Well, now they got to play another 12 and two to start the year. If you want to talk about parody, if you want to talk about bringing, bringing the elite back down, like look at Georgia's schedule this year. It was a complete joke. And that's the reason they didn't make the playoff. If Georgia had played anybody though, they got a tough schedule next year. Well, neither is Florida. Like Florida, I think will be able to go nine and three and make the playoff. So you know, that's the other thing is I don't want to watch teams that go like six and six teams, unless it's Virginia Tech, I'm not or Florida. I'm not watching six and six bowl games that much anymore. I just I have other things going on in my life. I don't have time to sit there at noon on December twenty-seventh catching all you right, know, re- relaxed guy who does two podcasts about college football. Relax. <laughs> well, but the concern is is that if I'm not watching then what does that say about the other people who are who are out there? And, and you know what, Will? I totally agree with that. I, I this year, uh, you know, my my wife and I we had a baby last month, and, and it, I'm sitting there, I'm holding a baby, watching games. Like so, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm stuck watching games. But the the thing that like the Pop Tarts Bowl, I could care less about Kansas State versus NC State, but those were two teams I didn't get to watch a ton of during the season. The game is not indicative of what's going to happen in 2024. It doesn't connect much to what happened in 2023. But you have two teams competing, playing hard. There's big plays all over the field. And then you got this goofy Pop-Tarts mascot running around the sideline with a whole storyline going on about that he's going to be eating at the end of the game. It, just hilarious. It was just fun. It was it was a fun thing to, to see. It was a fun thing to watch. And it's at a time of year where a lot of people are with family and, and these games do higher ratings than a lot of professional sports. But but the problem with the bowl system is that you've, you've taken this new playoff system and you're trying to weave it into this old system where it does not fit, it does not co- connect. And something like the Ohio State-Missouri game. So now the Cotton Bowl, 2020 you had the Gators not show up. I can't even really remember the last couple of Cotton Bowls. I know one of the Cotton Bowls was a playoff game, right? It was in Cincinnati play Alabama in one of the Cotton Bowls. Yeah, that was yeah, a good one, one too. Yeah, yeah, one, yeah, yeah. One of the Cotton Bowls was a playoff game, but really, two of the last four Cotton Bowls have been pretty terrible, right? Like, so it's it's something that the sport needs to get together and, and look at to see how they can at least make the games have two teams that actually want to be there. 
these, these well, tie-ins, so they can do these con- contractual tie-ins are causing these obligatory no-shows. No, you know what's causing it? What's really causing it is that um, is that these guys all have to figure out where they're going next before they enroll at a school in January. So well, it's, it's, the transfer portal, portal, the transfer right. portal is open before the postseason starts. Right. And therein lies your fundamental problem is these guys like Rotomaker said this for Florida State. He's like, I want to be there, but I can't be because I have to go get offered by Miami. And and <laughs> And, and but that's the thing is they're not bailing on their teammates in many cases like Bowers that is an injury decision right that is a financial decision because he's about to be a first round pick in the NFL draft but a guy like uh, so I'm trying to think of of a good example but a guy like uh, Jaden Hill right who just decided to enter the transfer portal and he's going to go play someplace else had Florida made a bowl game. Jaden Hill has to enter the transfer portal before the bowl game because otherwise someone else might get an opportunity he would have had. And we've seen that over and over with the transfer portal where the musical chairs stop and there are all of a sudden no spots for some of the guys who weren't sure thing, you know, Hey, this guy's going out there and getting an NIL deal and there's five teams competing for services. There's a lot of guys who are transferring, hoping to get better opportunities who are going to be left out and then they're going to drop down to either the group of five or even, even like a, um, you know, even FCS. like an FCS place, yep. an FCS opportunity because of it. And so these guys are incentivized and not only incentivized to do the in the best interest of their careers. <laughs> they have to bail on the bowl right. game in order to do that. So if college football wants to fix anything, to me, that's the thing you fix. Stop conflicting your players right. with 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 loyalty to their program because they all played the last game of the season. It was. It wasn't like it was. It's not like you have guys opting out of the Florida Florida State game. It's that you got to take this month between the the game and Thanksgiving and the game on New Year's Day or right around New Year's Day, and in that month the transfer portal is wide open and you're being recruited by other by other entities and you got to make a decision. And if you don't enter the portal, they can't they can't contact you. But if you do enter the portal, it's a distraction for your team and blah 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 and all that sort of stuff. So to me. The thing that they need to do is they just need to figure out the enrollment aspect of things in the spring. Basically, waive enrollment for guys who are going to transfer and then say New Year's Day is when the portal opens or New Year or January 2nd is when the portal opens. You got two weeks figured out or you got a month and a half figured out, whatever it is, right? And then and then the school has to figure out from an academic perspective, the classes that they have for guys who are transferring in for those sorts of opportunities. But that's the thing is the enrollment aspect of it to the school is what's causing this problem. So, you know, 10 years from now, college football is going to be decoupled from the actual institution. I'm not sure a lot of these guys are actually going to be going to school 10 or 15 years from now, but that's the thing that's limiting this is that the spring semester starts. So you either have to move everything forward Right. You got to start like you got to start playing bowl games the week after Thanksgiving or the week after the SEC championship game. You got to start playing those bowl games and be done by the time Christmas comes around. So people have time to visit and do that sort of stuff. Or you're just going to keep dealing with this because that's the disconnect. The disconnect is the portal is putting these guys in a situation that's just not winnable. And so it's no longer just the first round draft pick or even the third round draft pick who's opting out and killing you. It's that it's all the guys who are transferring to different universities 
in addition to the guys who are going to be NFL draft picks all opting out. And previously, last year, the year before, the year before that, it was just the guys going to the NFL, and you could kind of get away with it. Yeah, you'd have the Cotton Bowl every once in a while where Florida didn't want to be there. But for the most part, those were still the guys going to the NFL. That was Kadarius Tony. That was Kyle Pitts. Those guys who were opting out. Now you got guys who are true freshmen. Now you got Walter Nolan and and uh, and Evan Stewart for Texas A&M transferring and look, AM has to go out and play with their third string quarterback um because of because of all that Max Johnson transfers out of AM. That would have been a prime opportunity for Johnson to show people what he could do. And instead, Johnson's already transferring someplace else just because North of Carolina. He He's locked up already. Well, between him and Will Rogers, we're gonna have some interesting, interesting conversations about Carolina and Washington. <laughs> well, I mean, from a coaching perspective, too. Would it make more sense for Ryan Day to to work hard to close Jeremiah Smith on early National Signing Day, or to make, uh, you know, watch an extra tape of Missouri? What do you think? Well, hell, Hugh Freeze was honest moment? about it. Freeze was just like, "Yeah, I was recruiting. I didn't have anything to do with the offensive game plan. That's why we sucked." <laughs> it's like, well, at yeah. least he's being honest. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, these bowl games too. Like at some point, they gotta look at this. And go, hey, we want to put a good product on the field too. So it's like, I'm. It's it's a rough situation. I don't think this it's a Frankenstein monster right now. It's it's not it's not a uh it's not a real thing. It's not gonna be a thing that's it's not gonna be the same five years from now or ten years from now. So we're kind of in this transition period where the old is finally starting to to kind of die off and, and we're gonna figure out what the new is. It, you know, something that 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 is out there with the playoff right now is there's no plan beyond the next two years so far. So it's hard to say what the future bowl games are going to be when we don't really the teams. future of the playoffs. <laughs> it's going to be nuts. So, so, so here's, here's the deal is that TV money is going to talk. The reason I used the jackass movies or the saw movie analogy is because people enjoyed watching that Florida state, Georgia train wreck. Like there was not only was my timeline filled with people enjoying it. I was getting, I was getting texts from, from, people reasonably high up in the Florida program going, this is kind of fun. And, and, and the reality is, is that that is, that is a one-time deal. So ESPN is probably happy with the ratings that they got for Georgia and Florida state this year, but they're not going to get the same ratings for another game like that. It's pretty special circumstance to have those two teams playing each other in that particular bowl. And so the ratings are going to dictate what college football does because college football inherently is reactive. They always have been. And look, I mean, Florida state is in the situation they are suing to get out of the ACC because the ACC has been more reactive than proactive in terms of setting up TV contracts, making sure that they've got everything set up to where they can be someone who's acquiring teams rather than a conference that's sitting there watching all the other conferences grow while they just sit there with their thumb up their butt, trying to figure out what to do next. So college football inherently is reactive. It's also incredibly siloed because the SEC makes decisions that are best for the SEC. The Big Ten makes decisions that are best for the Big Ten. The ACC makes Which is decisions. Another reason why change is so slow. It's it's they they're not on the same page. Everybody's well, it's doing not even a thing. matter of slow. It's a matter of it's if if you think about a TV contract, it's a zero sum game, right? Because if the if if they have to share money 
for a playoff, then the then the sharing is going to probably going to be tied to the number of teams you make in the playoff, which means the SEC has a vested interest in making sure that we leave out teams like Liberty. Because that doesn't, that's a spot that could go to Ole Miss or a spot that could go to LSU. And fine bowl game. So you, so so you get four teams from the SEC in, and all of a sudden you're dominating money. So, the the, one of the reasons I'm sure that the TV contract hasn't been done for the playoff is because the conferences are trying to strong arm each other into who gets what funds and how the playoff is actually designed and all that sort of stuff. So, look. They're reactionary, and the SEC is the bully. The Big Ten is trying to be a bully. That's why they're growing with USC and UCLA. Um, the ACC sort of stuck, so the Big Ten and the SEC are going to drive what all of this looks like. And you know, the good news for Florida is that means Florida should be advantaged in whatever whatever washes out in terms of all this sort of stuff. But you know, they're not going to make an adjustment until ESPN tells them they need an adjustment. They're not going to make an adjustment until Fox tells them they need an adjustment. So when the negotiating rights for these bowls come up, they'll come up with a solution. Right now, they're so focused on the negotiating rights of the 12-team playoff that, look, we'll have we'll have a mama Pop-Tart who gets eaten next year rather than the daddy Pop-Tart. I don't know what will happen. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there will be something else weird where they'll look at that as a social media phenomenon and say, look, that's what the Alamo Bowl is good for these days, and let's drive ratings that way. And, um, you know, that's sort of an NBA strategy where most people don't watch NBA games. They see highlights from the NBA on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and that sort of stuff. I'm not sure that's where college football wants to be. I think college football, especially with its, with its television partners and what drives the finances is going to want to try to find a way to maximize income. But let's be honest, the real money is going to come from this playoff. Like that's where the money's going to come from. Um, you think about CBS and NBC and, and Fox when they pay for the NFL. Yeah. That's content all fall along. But they fight over who gets the Super Bowl. They fight over who gets the playoff games. The reason the NFL expanded to 17, 17 games or yeah, 17 games and a seventh team in the playoff from each conference is that seventh team in the playoff meant two more playoff games, which meant more money for the contracts they were putting together. The playoffs are what drive the revenue. And so that 12 teamer is what's going to do it at least to start with. And they'll figure out the bulls later. But the reality is, is I mean, think about it. If you're Shreveport and you have a bowl game, what are you really doing? Like when you lose that bowl game, that impacts your, that impacts your community. When you're, you know, the pinstripe bowl in New York, that impacts your community. Like the money and the influx that that those games cause for those communities is significant. So they're not going to want to lose it. So then it just comes down to can the can the NCAA or can the conferences, really the conferences, extract as much money as possible from TV partners to do that. And I just think the TV money is going to be stuck with the playoff for the most part. And, um, you know, the bowl games are sort of going to be that vestigial tail that gets tacked on at the end. I'm going to uh, make a bold prediction and say that the people of the Bronx are going to be just fine if the pinstripe bowl goes away. I think the New York Yankees will be all right, too. Wow. Be, hey, look, okay. all I know, all I know is, all I know is, and we're going to end on this, but all I know is that both Rutgers and UNLV playing in bowl games this year, after all you did was give me crap about about looking at Rutgers and UNLV and saying those are the, those are the programs that are going to benefit from uh, from from college football 
rearrangements and reorganizations mm -hmm. and uh look i'm telling you man the mm -hmm. shiano era man just just took out uh, took out miami ripped their soul out and i'm hoping that billy napier in that miami florida game goes ahead and starts off the game with uh graham Mertz taking a knee and did you watch either Rutgers or unlv i watched unlv because their offensive coordinator seems kind of innovative I'll never watch Rutgers, but they're in New York or basically New York. So yeah, TV market. market, you're in Philly. You should be watching all the Rutgers games. Well, come on. Nah, I'm busy watching Brian Johnson get raked over the coals here in Philly as the offensive coordinator of the Eagles. <laughs> hoping that maybe, hoping that maybe he decides it's better to be an offensive coordinator in college. That's what I'm hoping is as, as I'm watching the Eagles sort of crash and burn and, and the criticism he's taking as the offensive coordinator for the Eagles. Man, I can't believe Philadelphia being rough on a coach. That's, I've seen everything now. I've Who would have known? Now. I mean, I do like it that after they won the Super Bowl a few years ago, they, they've got a song that's, um, you know, you don't like us, we don't care, is <laughs> is the gist of the song. And I'm like, yeah, pretty much sums up the experience up here. <laughs> All right, well, good talk about the playoffs here. We'll be back next week. Enjoy the weekend, everybody. National championship game, college football season comes to an official close. Coming up uh, next Monday. For Will Miles, I'm Nick Knudsen. Have a great weekend, everybody, and go Gators. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction, or you can go to patreon.com slash readandreaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anything over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.